Get ready to strap in for another exciting episode of No Driving Gloves, where Derek, John, and Will will use over 75 years combined industry knowledge to bring you a bare-knuckled review on the collector car hobby. Let's get rolling. Welcome back, everybody. I'm glad to hear you or see you, listen to you uh, joining us again this week. You've got John, Will, and Derek here to chat about cars and such. We're going to go ahead and kind of tell you about, again, what we did during the week so you have a little bit of idea what goes on behind the scenes. As I said in the last episode, I had a maker's event to go do this weekend. It was more of the artist-type stuff, but met some pretty cool jewelers and metal workers, metal artists. There was some, uh, what do you call it, pig iron pourers and that at the event. Picked up a few new podcast listeners, had a few people comment on the podcast, so I know a few of you were out there and enjoying the event too. Otherwise, I'm just working on the big swap meet that I have to manage in October for the the day job thing. Either one of you do anything exciting or interesting this week? I do know that I think Will and Derek met for the first time in person. Yeah, yeah, Will and Derek met. um, You know, uh, we don't really like each other, so we're going to, you know, we'll see how long this podcast lasts, you know. Right, Will? (laughs) Oh, sure. (laughs) Applications I, being accepted. I did, I did buy dinner, so I must like you a little bit. Well, you know, they say I'm not a cheap date, so. Um, <laughs> no, uh, my my week's just been pretty much, I, I literally, I've been working. The exhibit coming up that we're opening up at work, uh, I actually worked over the weekend. So until that exhibit's open, my life's going to be work. Obviously, I was in Bowling Green, met Derek for the first time. Uh, we attended the uh, Tri Five Nationals, which is uh, put on by Dan Chuck and Woody's Hot Rod Shop. It was uh, a very, very, very well organized event. Twenty seven hundred and eighteen Tri Fives, I think, was what was there. Uh, that includes Corvettes, you know, Tri Five cars, and Tri Five trucks. So it was, um, yeah, it was a lot of Tri Fives, but uh, man, drag racing going on. A lot of vendors. We actually. Uh, participated in, in vending. Uh, so we had our trailer set up and brought three vehicles and uh, one of them which received uh, top 25. So that was that was pretty neat. Uh, something else I can add to our achievements here at Big Oak Garage. So also meeting Derek for the first time and attending the museum he is curator at uh, was very interesting. Uh, so, hey, 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 yeah, private, uh, private tour, don't forget, private I, tour. I did, private tour, got to go uh, got to go around into some places and people staring at us like we were part of the museum, you know? <laughs> um, you, you guys do look like relics in person. Yeah, you know, we, we did stand by there and model one, during one point. There was about 30 people that crowded around and we just stood there, you know, like, don't move because we're part of the exhibit. It was pretty neat. <laughs> Not really. Oh, <laughs> uh, and then uh, busted back to Alabama and got back to work. That summar- summarizes our exciting lives. It's kind of just like everybody else. There's work and there's a little bit of fun. So I think we talked about how the internet. Hit has influenced the collector car hobby. And that's where we're going to go a little bit tonight in the uh, discussion. The goods, the bads, the evils. I want to say I started to get into cars 
really for a paycheck back when I was at Illinois Central College uh, earning a modern automotive technology degree. In that class, this was mid-90s, so the internet was new. It was so new, the school really didn't have computers. It wasn't computers at every desk. Nobody carried, smartphones didn't exist. I carried this massive Motorola flip phone, a DPC 550. It was a new thing when we went to get our books and manuals to learn how to figure out the procedure to work on whatever car. It was a Mitchell manual. It was a hardback book you would check out from the parts counter and go through. I do remember we had to do an assignment, and we had to research it on the newfangled Internet. At the time, I don't even think I had a computer at home. I did use a web TV unit, which was this little box that sat on your TV, and I bought the deluxe one with a keyboard so that you could type and remember doing it. You couldn't even print off of it. That was the biggest thing with web TV. You couldn't print off of it and drove people crazy. You know, that's how far back I've been in the car industry, and I've grown with the car industry with the Internet, Uh, back with discussion forums well before social media, well before the chat rooms, Remember being on the CRX forum all the time, checking it every night, and it, it's really a layout I I miss back in the HTML GeoCities days. That's where I started with the car hobby, and that's like I said, I've been around me every day that I've been in cars, and at present my job, much to my supervisors discussed, I think I probably spend thirty hours minimum a week on the computer searching for parts, doing research, and then again communicating with people on email and that really a revolutionary thing. Where's what you know, your first exposure to I want to say internet in the uh, car hobby. Um I mean mine was kind of similar to yours, John. Um I mean growing up with old cars, you know, restoring cars with my father, uh, we acquire cars, you know, to restore yeah, I, I remember. I'm I'm not much of a tech guy, you know. Modern tech, especially, uh, give me a hundred year old car, we're doing good. I do remember the very first computer I think we had was a Commodore PC10. We're we're getting into being a tech podcast now. Weird, um, you know. And and then we had varying computers going up. But I remember when we first got internet and we were able to go online. You know, dot, good old dial up. It was really for me. The internet and the classic car hobby, other than what I'd, you know, classic car hobby of what I'd been doing with restoring cars in the garage with dad, was now going online and researching um, the history of the cars, whatever I could find, if there were parts out there available, things like that, and just trying to track down whatever you could that wasn't in your local area, you know, your immediate area. Which became convenient. Unfortunately, some of the cars that, of course, Dad and I own are oddball cars. And in the early days of the internet, you couldn't find anything on them because, of course, they weren't a Model T and there weren't 100,000, you know, 200,000 of them still in existence. You know, that, it, it, that's kind of where my experiences with it began. And, of course, like you, John, today, uh, you know, as a curator and even in my work in conservation, there's a lot of time spent on the computer doing some research on cars and artifacts that are car related and just, I mean, delving into that world of 
everything that's out on the internet and then, of course, trying to figure out what's actually accurate and not accurate. But I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit. My first experience really with the internet and and cars was when I was in high school, uh, 16, 17 years old, 18 years old, and my father and I drag raced. So it was getting on the internet and, you know, seeing who won the national event that week or checking out the points for the NHRA bracket race programs and stuff like that. So that's really where I got my start, you know, looking up info on the internet. So that's 97, 98 uh, was when, when that was going on. And then when I went to college, which was for, you know, automobile restoration there was a lot of research that was involved uh on certain projects and that we researched everything on the internet and if you know if you couldn't find it then you know you, you tried to find a book or something like that but pretty much you could find whatever you needed to find on the internet and that was 2000 2001 today i mean I hardly pick up the phone to order any part. It's all done via the internet, whether it's through Holly or Summit or JX or Motor State or any of the vendors that, that we use. It's, any of which would be welcomed as a sponsor. Daggone right. And um, so all of them, you know, we, we pretty much just order on the internet unless it's a uh, you know, a custom part that, that needs to be custom designed or, or something like that. It's, it's strictly find it on the internet and get it on the way. Say that's kind of where it's grown for me too, is I, you know, I order all the parts for our restoration department and I much prefer to do everything on the internet. It gives you a time track. I believe in paper trails. I've learned over my career, paper trails are very good. You can hang yourself with them, but if you actually do your job, you can save yourself a lot of times by proving when it was ordered, what you ordered, if the wrong thing was shipped, things like that. I even to the point, it's you know, I think we all kind of do it definitely with our cell phones. If we don't know the number or whatever, we let it go to voicemail, but I let every phone call that hits my desk go to voicemail because it gets emailed to me, and then I have a record of receiving that phone call. and. It's there to access and organizing these swap meets and that. You deal with a lot of people that, oh, no, I talked to you on such and such a day, and I called, and, and sorry, I have I have 18,000 emails or something, and, no, and you're, you're not there. So I don't delete them. I, you know, when it comes down to just daily life today as far as email and ordering on the Internet, really provides a paper trail and saves a lot of confusion you, even when you call even when I have to call and talk to somebody about ordering parts it's just kind of uncomfortable because you hope that they understood what you needed or what oddball thing we're all working with cars that aren't everyday things so sometimes it's a description of what I need or it's just like this car but I need to make sure this part fits and Will's creating everything from a blank piece of paper. So I'm sure he, he faces some of those challenges and no, I wanted this specific model year and you sent me this and, and little things like that really add up. The good thing about 
the way we do it is we'll just order something that's close to what we want and then we'll just cut it up and make it fit or change it to where it's to our liking or something like that. So I can still get away with ordering that part and then just, you know, modify it to fit our our needs. And I remember back in in college, and I was in college with Will, it was 98 through 2000, actually. And at the time, I didn't live on campus. I had a computer, that, and I remember hours every night being on eBay. And this was in the infancy of eBay, where I could go in and I could search for Lotus and buy Lotus memorabilia. And I could look at everything listed that day, every day, everything that was new, that was Lotus, that, you know, had appeared. And there were only like, eBay would come up and its opening screen would be like 2.1 million items for sale in all of eBay. Now I get on eBay and there's 2.1 million items in Lotus for sale. And it wasn't new parts. It was good classic stuff. I'll be honest, I very rarely get on eBay today, 20 years later, because so much of it is Chinese stuff, fakes, counterfeits. Everybody wants to use keywords. And you know, if I want to look for Lotus medallions or Lotus emblems or Lotus decals, I want the real thing. I don't want to have to sift through everybody that's got a cut and a silhouette printer at home cutting their own vinyl and trying to sell it to me as something real because typefaces and fonts and just the thickness of some of the letters. I had to reorder a set of decals this week that a couple hundred bucks to go on a race car because the little, the T had slightly the wrong angle on the top of the T from the original set that I bought to the ones that actually were on this car when it raced. That's one of the bad things about the internet and I will, you know, definitely say eBay is the the number of counterfeit things and the quality of the parts and the descriptions aren't always accurate and you're you're curious if you're getting something. Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, you know a good point in all of this, which is the internet has increased the that kind of traffic, reproduction parts or you know knockoffs, you know this stuff like this. And it's also a, a tip to not only the internet, but the advancement of, of technology even around the internet with people being being able to search the internet, find historic photos, and then be able to, or buy original decals, you know, do a bad scan of them, low resolution, something like that, try to make reproductions and try to make money. You know, it's kind of one of those, It's it it's a good thing and it's a bad thing because even on the historical end of things when as a curator and as a historian when you're trying to do research you know trying to separate separate out the scholarly articles from some guy that owns a car and it's his favorite car in the world and he's going to write the history on that car and you know he's just going to write what he comes up with it's good and bad because it the internet allows an outlet for people to do these things and sometimes it is really bad for the hobby and for the restorers if they're not careful and really paying attention to what they're looking at if they're buying parts or if they're you know buying decals like you said John and for historians you know we have to be very cautious you know i mean one of the things all of us historians hate is 
Wikipedia. <laughs> no, nobody likes that. It's led to an interesting time where we're not going out and going to, you know, at least not as much as, let's say, not as much as people used to, going out to swap meets and finding the original parts or the, you know, OEM replacement parts at a swap meet or any of that. We're going online and we're trying to trust people to be honest. And I think that's a big issue with the internet is there's too many people that can be dishonest. Going to totally discount the internet as the internet was invented and fraud and misinformation happened. I've been exposed to restorations and you get a car and you get a box of records with it. The cars from the 50s or the 40s or whatever, whatever generation, and this car has been restored once or it's been campaigned in a vintage race or you see some of the misinformation that is out there where they were trying to falsify records to try to increase the pedigree of the car. So it didn't, I'm going to say, didn't happen with the internet. So we're, I'm not going to totally blame the internet. It it happened before then, back when, you know, you had written communications and things like that. It has also helped with a little bit of honesty because even like this podcast, we ha- we're very careful with what we say because we want to be right with it. And we know we're going to get called if it's wrong. You know, people listen to us and take us for what we say. There, There's a certain responsibility of the information you put out there. And one of the reasons I assembled this team for the podcast, Will, Derek, and myself, is I think we're all three very honest. And while podcasting is part of the Internet and the advent of the Internet, we want to make sure our information is correct and we're not going to stray too much out of what we actually know. Even the fantasy episode on spending a quarter million dollars, we spent a couple minutes in that episode on air verifying car prices. You know, I did not believe Will could buy a truck that cheap, even though Will buys trucks that cheap. I didn't believe it could be done. And I proved and th- that was an episode I've proved myself wrong twice. So twice in one hour, that's pretty tough. So but oh, the Internet has just made it much easier to disseminate incorrect information. And that's a drawback. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think I was trying. I wasn't trying to say the Internet's at fault, but it has made it a much easier and a much wider range of that to occur. You know, it's it's globally accessible now. You know, like you say, it's it's always existed. It's just it has, I think, increased it, increased the possibilities and chances of it. Well, as you said, anybody can pop up on Wikipedia and go to, uh, say, the McLaren F1 page and make up whatever the most expensive one sold for. And if they did it, say, if they hit that Saturday morning, an uninformed buyer is going to, you know, get on there and go, "Oh, wow, the record price for a McLaren F1 is twenty-three million dollars." Well. It's really, I think, 12.8, 13.7, something like that, low teens. And there's, you know, a very significant McLaren being auctioned that afternoon. And that little bit of information could translate out to somebody who's live broadcasting. If we were broadcasting, you know, if we were watching the auctions online and we were broadcasting it and we quickly got on the Wikipedia page and all of a sudden that wrong information's now been repeated by us because we didn't know any better. That's, like you said, Wikipedia provides some great information, and I I dig up some pretty good information on Wikipedia. 
I always want to confirm the information that I get. You know, it gives me an idea and I need to I need to see anything, especially in a museum setting. If I'm presenting this to the general public, I need to see it at least twice, if not three times from three different unrelated sources. And it's it's the old journalism rule that doesn't exist. But I, I need I need a source and I need two confirmations on that source before I really want to tell anybody that information and portray it as fact. And if you can get a, a primary source of the information is key. And then, but I, I want to go back because you said something uh, that I think is it lead can lead to an interesting discussion between the three of us, which is you mentioned someone getting on Wikipedia the morning of, say, an auction and putting a false all-time record high price on there. And if that spreads fast enough... Is there a chance with the internet and things like ha- that happening that now the price of the car being sold at auction that day is going to go higher because there's misinformation out there? Can the internet, I, and I, I, I have to say, I don't know of any record of this ever happening yet, but is there a chance in the future that misinformation being spread on the internet could affect the sale price of a significant vehicle and make it go higher than it technically should? I'm I'm sure that it could because I mean you watch the Barrett Jackson auction that's live in Scottsdale. What what are most of the people doing if they're not bidding? What are they doing? They're looking at their phone. They're looking up to see what this car cost. What that especially the guys that are buying to resell, you know. So they're they're looking up. Oh man, this car brought thirty five million dollars or whatever, and it's up there and it's only you know, $12 million. So they're, if they're looking to buy and flip, man, I could, I could see that guy making an impulse buy because, Hey, two weeks ago, this would brought this much money. I'm going to buy this one and, and flip it and make a bunch of money. You know, I'm, 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 I'd be willing to bet that that's already happened. I would think that in the, we're talking, you know, talking McLaren F1s and Ferrari Testarossas and five, five million up cars, that doesn't happen too much. We we would hope that those are an educated buyer and somebody doesn't go in and, you know, look at Wikipedia and go, wait a second, this whatever, whatever, whatever world record price is, you know, $7.8 million and this one's only going for three. I'm going to buy it and bid it up and then find out that the world record price is like 1.1. But I would really bet that when you get into the what I used to call second mortgage cars, the fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollar price range, that would really help because I don't think those cars and necessarily those buyers. I mean, that's the bulk of the buyers at exactly they they put the cars out there. Um, I want to say a week or two ago, Jay Leno was on an episode. He had an episode of his his show, and he was in a Bradley GT, and he was kind of criticizing it. On some of the Bradley GT Facebook pages and internet presence, they were saying, oh, that's the car that was at Barrett-Jackson that bid to this. And then it was on Craigslist for this this amount of money and this and this. And, you know, the guy that originally had that car that appeared at Barrett-Jackson, he knows what he sold it for. I know what he originally sold it for. And now it's, you know, whoever owns it now is trying to shop it for a lot more money. And they accuse Jay of being in that car. And the internet in... It's nice quickness. Jeff Dunham, actually, the comedian, actually owns the car Jay was in, 
and he put out a YouTube video about his Bradley GT collection this week, which really helped me and my love for Bradley GTs. It felt pretty good. You know, Jeff Dunham, just as much of a car guy as Leno, but he discounted and said, this is the car. This is why I own it. But it is not the car that was at Barrett-Jackson. It is He was squashing a lot of those internet rumors because the car at Barrett-Jackson was this brown metal flake with the same driving lights, blah, 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 blah. But there's a bunch of them out there with the same brown, with the same driving lights and the, the metal flake. That was a color of the car. You know, Dunham lent his to Leno for Leno's piece. And then Dunham, Dunham came back and corrected the internet fairly quickly. I don't know if he would have done that video if the bad information wasn't being thrown around immediately after that episode of Jay Leno's Garage. So there, I guess there is a little bit of a check and balance if the right person's watching. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the key is that, you know, it's, there is good information out there and there's bad information out there. And, you know, that's, again, I think why, you know, we, we just need to be careful with what we're doing um, when we're looking this stuff up, researching this stuff. And, you know, I wasn't saying, you know, just that someone goes on Wikipedia and adds some, you know, fake number that on that. But I mean, there's pretty, I mean, you can create a fake website pretty easily that looks good and you could have, you know, a lot of misleading information on the values of cars on that, that it, maybe it doesn't make anyone believe that is solid truth, but it starts to at least muddy the waters. And again, it goes back to that, John, you know, okay, I found it once. Can I find it two or three other times to prove that it's real? You know, that is, that is one of the big problems. Yeah, or I, I think that will be a big problem if too many people get involved with trying to be dishonest with the hobby. We've covered pretty in depth the honesty and the dishonesty and verifying your information. And websites and that are, are good. I think I'm going to jump the conversation a little bit. And the advent of social media has really created an issue. And I'm assuming most of our listeners, the he's and she's, and that are listening to our podcast are a little bit car savvy and understand things. But there seems to be this thing, it was really big on Facebook over the winter of certain procedures you do to your car, which if you do would destroy them, you know, well, it's, you know, antifreeze and it, it creates, the, you know, something that your car can't, you know, this won't create freezing. I'm not going to really go into any of the memes because I don't want to spread that misinformation. But as a joke that a car guy might have created that you need to do this because of this season happening or you need to do this because it'll extend the life of whatever People have to even be careful. It's it's that people want to do things as a joke and they're spreading incorrect information. Or everybody on the internet, because it's anonymous, is an expert on a topic. I've had conversations where, to, you know, somebody's had something and th there's been a question about it. You know, they've created something and this is what it is. This You know, this is my sighting. This is what happened. And a few people go, well, this really doesn't exist. This doesn't exist. Well, I might have access to the expert, and I reach out to the expert, and I come back and I say, I spoke with these experts, this is what they say, this is what it is, and you, know, you get a couple of people, oh, that's good, that's good, but the person who originally posted trying to, because 
they were either wrong or slightly wrong or slightly off their information was wrong, come back and again defend themselves. The internet has created this world of experts when it was kind of nice when they didn't exist. Anybody out there? Yeah. 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 I'm going to say there oh, took a slight delay there because Will just texted the uh, picture of <laughs> blinker fluid. Sorry. Yeah, that was that was what distracted everyone. <laughs> and while I'm going to Instagram, while I'm going to shorten that 35 to 45 second pause in editing there's going to be a pause that's why it happened and that's exactly what we're talking about is is i'm low on blinker fluid and you know if you buy two gallons of blinker fluid i'll throw in a box of muffler bearings so yes that's exactly you know and it's that's the joke and i think i I would say 90 percent of america would understand that joke but there is a certain contingent, and I'm going to be mean and say New Yorkers that Uber everywhere that would think that might be something that they need to do when they move to Iowa because of a job transfer. You know? uh, <laughs> Great. Now the New Yorkers well, are going to be after us. <sighs> bet, and, and six or seven Iowans. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd like to change it a little bit to something that, we at uh, Big Oak Garage, or you know, mainly me, benefit from the internet greatly is being able to buy parts from across the pond. You know, I can I can get on the internet and I can research parts that are not available in the United States, whether it's a cool wing nut or an air cleaner that only came on something that was produced overseas that look would look right at home in one of our custom builds that nobody's ever seen before, especially on an American car that, that we take to these hot rod shows. I can buy off of, you know, eBay or, uh, you know, another uh, website that sells vintage car parts or even modern car parts that's not available in the United States and have them shipped over here for, you know, putting them on something custom and making our builds a little more unique and people wondering, Hey, where'd you get that? You know, where'd you get that engine cover for that LS motor? The one on the blue and white Ford truck is actually from Australia. It's a Holden engine cover. So everybody's nobody, nobody's seen one. Where'd it come from? Well, it come from Australia. Ordered some wing nuts that for a project that we're building to hold the air cleaners on just for the sheer fact of they're, they're different. Uh, they're not available here, and you just have them shipped over here. And, and we benefit from that just about on every project that we build. There's something that comes over here from somewhere, some other country. A little truck we're building right now, there were some specific little bolts that I wanted. Nobody had them, but a company in Australia had them. So I just ordered them, and they shipped them here. We we benefit benefited from from it every day. Just just being able to find parts that you you could you would never find them any other way other than searching it on the internet. I think parts are probably the biggest impact the internet's had because it's taught or doesn't 
limit itself to cars. It covers antiques. It covers glassware. It covers baseball cards, everything. That things that we once thought were extremely rare or hard to find exist everywhere. It's just only two people would ever take them to a swap meet or put them in a issue of name that magazine's classifieds for sale. You never see them come up or maybe at an estate auction. It's proven that some things are, like I said, not as rare as we once thought they were and really tank the prices. And other things are extremely rare. Back, like I said, when I was doing eBay 10, 12 years ago, I had a Triumph Spitfire that I bought to use some of the parts for another project I had. And I started to sell parts of it on eBay. And I would find, I would like, I think it was an A-arm or uprights or something I listed in there was nothing in the eBay history to even base a price on. And I'm somebody, when I sell parts that I don't need or sell things I don't need, I don't care what I'm going to get for them. I just want them to go to somebody who can use them, and I don't want them at my house anymore. So I put them up, and, you know, this thing sold for $117 or $128. I mean, just over 100 bucks. And then all of a sudden, two weeks late, but within the next two weeks, there were five or six of these things up there because somebody saw them sell for that and everybody thought that's what they were worth. You know, it was before the buy it now on eBay, which that's a whole nother topic. You know, the Internet's affected that. I remember going to swap meets, Chickasay shop, swap meet, Carlisle events and things like that. And the vendors 15 years ago hated eBay, hated what eBay had done because it made some of the stuff that they had worthless. It made some of the stuff that, they, you know, it was a competitor to them. People weren't going to the swap meets. Now people go to the swap meets, you know, more of an adventure and maybe I'll find a part or go there. We've kind of, we covered it a few episodes ago. You go there to have a good time and talk to people and maybe the part transaction, the money moving has slowed down a little bit. I'll say that, you know, I work with a car swap meet for a living, and I work for a, with a motorcycle swap meet for a living. The motorcycle industry has been a lot different. It, their swap meet, a lot of those guys want to go in the parts, and that's the only place you're going to find this stuff. It's interesting because now we're getting to a point. I don't think the car swap meets nor the automotive or the motorcycle swap meets, automotive or motorcycle, really care about eBay. They, they have their niche of things and they know what they're going to sell. Things have leveled out. It's really changed the demographic of the purchaser and the clientele at swap meets. And it's helped dictate some of the prices. Some of the prices, like I said, have went up. Some of the prices have went down. It's kind of like the Will alluded to the Barrett-Jackson effect. The first year that I went and interned at Barrett-Jackson was like the first or second year they were on TV and didn't have a lot of impact. They were still on the ancient channel Speed Vision, and I'm not even sure who carries them now at MSNBC or Velocity or wherever they're at. The DVR just picks it up and I watch it. And now everybody thinks their car is worth X number of dollars because it sold at Barrett-Jackson and don't take all the demographics and situation of the Barrett Jackson into account. So not, you know, not every Chevelle's worth $90,000, etc. You know, that's some of the little things that I think the internet has done to both help and hurt the hobby is it made some of those rare things, hard to find things, easy to find. And it's made some of those, what we thought were easy to find in everyday mundane things actually proved that they're fairly rare and should be worth some more money. And then there's the people that just Let's see what we can get for them. It's books on Amazon that you can buy for $5 or $500, and they're the same condition. Just one person thinks it's rarer than the other.
Yeah, and I think that's kind of the interesting twist on the internet, if you will, and this might get a little convoluted, I guess, but the internet, with everything that it's done, it has opened a door that the essentially the consumer market is again you know go back it's global and so you have the opportunity to market your vehicle or your part to a much broader audience um, which could increase the price you get for it because more people are interested in in it and looking at it and might be willing to pay a little more to make sure nobody else gets the car that they want but you also have the chance that you're selling a car or a part that you think is rare and now that you have everybody in the world almost able to go on the internet and post things you find out that you know 3,000 other people have that same part that you have up for sale and they can't sell it because you're the only 3,000 people in the world that for some reason want it you know market wise I think it's it's kind of it's had a weird effect because it does open the door to so many more possible buyers, but it also opens the door to so many more possible competitors that have the same piece or part or automobile that you have. So one way it could drive the price up, the other it could drive the price down. I, you know, and I'm going to say, I'm going to go to the good good side of the internet. And like I said, I don't buy much on eBay and don't do anything that are a lot with eBay. But I will say every time I buy a new car, which, as we've discussed, is a yearly occasion for me. Like when I bought my my Velocitor last October, I think it was, one of the first things I did that week is, what can I do to kind of personalize it? Because I I don't customize cars anymore that I drive daily, but I want some personalization. And it's nice to get on and go on eBay and you can find everything that's potentially available to, say, modify in a bolt-on application for a new car. I mean, if I was Will, I might go ahead and do some body modifications and have my guys adjust some sheet metal and things. But if I want, you know, what are some cool graphics and how can I change those up and have my graphics guy who does vinyl change that up and get a little bit more personalized? Or can I actually do something with the mirrors? Or can I, what can I do to it? make this just a little bit different than everybody else. And the internet's, it's like getting the old J.C. Whitney catalog, but it's right there and you can go through it and, oh yeah, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. And I think it helps a little bit of the creativity. There's ways to go a lot farther. I mean, if I had a 3D printer, there's a couple things I'd love to 3D print to help. And I have a buddy that wants to create a certain item for his Challenger with the 3D printer and I think now I have access to the 3D printers and the graphics programs to maybe build that prototype for him and do do a couple of those things without actually investing in the equipment. But it again, it's it does let people know what you, what's out there and what can be done in, in a really easy, simple way. And you don't have to wait for the car magazine. You don't have to wait for anything like that. And I guess saying car magazine, that's a different different way that the internet has helped. You know, I carry an iPad Pro 12.9 inch everywhere I go. And one of the big reasons I bought the 12.9 inch iPad wasn't because it did all this fancy stuff and it has a cool little pencil. It's because I can get my magazines digitally, appears on the screen the same size as a, a magazine page. It's just like thumbing through a magazine with most of the magazine apps. And I can get on an airplane and carry 50 different magazines with me in the space of an iPad. 
again, that's another thing that the Internet's made much more convenient for disseminating information. Granted, websites and stuff will do that, but I'm still, you know, I'm that generation that still likes magazines, but the iPad has at least got me off necessarily getting a forest worth of magazines each month to getting them digitally. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because I've... I've heard a few guys, and I, I haven't looked into this yet, but I've heard a couple guys I know talk about the fact that there's now websites that are basically offering prototyping and machining services where if you're talented enough to even give them a rough drawing and measurements of a part um, that you've come up with, they'll actually rapid prototype it or machine it for you and, and send it to you. I, I again, I'm, I've just heard about this in the last like couple weeks. I heard a couple guys mention something about it. I don't know if you guys have run into this, John, especially with you and, and, you know, the making the maker stuff you're getting into. I mean, that, that could open a whole door to some, some very interesting things. I think, uh, John, I mean, have you heard anything about these? No, when I was with the conservation firm I was at 12 years ago or so, and we were doing historical artifacts and that, there was a website, and I don't I don't know if they exist. I'll put their name out there. It was emachine.com. You would go in, and they had their own online CAD program that on your PC you could design the part. You, you chose the metal, you, you but you had to design the part, so you had to have some of the CAD, CAD talent to do it, but it was a very simple program. So you designed the part, you chose the metal, all the, you know, all the dimensions were there. You sent it off to them. They came back with what that would cost you to have made, whether you bought one, two, or 100. And of course, it got cheaper the more you bought because once you set the machine up, the first one's expensive. After that, it's material cost and time. And that service worked great for us. And I know there's many, many more. Uh, that have, you know, that was 12 years ago. And now with the advent of 3D printers, uh, there are lots of sites. And if you go to a lot of even the 3D printer sites, there are files and files that you can just get online and basically download the file and print what you need. So what you've heard of, Derek, does exist. It's actually been out there at least, I would say, 15 plus years and is a very handy service if you don't, you know, if you don't have a five access, you know, CNC machine in, in your garage, it's a way to have access to a five axis CNC machine and have a part produced. I work with a guy that's designing his own watches and building his own watches, and he's one of these. He wants to do everything, but I've worked with him for 10 years. He's been working on this watch for 12 years because he's tried to buy all of the tooling and everything. And the hopes are by Christmas, he'll have his first prototype done really cool item he's building, but if he would have listened to me 10 years ago and went to eMachine and just uploaded his SolidWorks drawings to them, he would have had everything machined and he could have had this thing put together and, you know, maybe been selling a few watches by now, but it's, you know, what you want to do. But yes, those services are out there and I think will become more and more prevalent as time goes on and, you know, really the costs of the equipment come down and Fusion 360 is a fairly simple software program to use. It's free for the individual to use, provided you're not selling or monetizing anything you create in it. If you design, say, a fork in it and you print out eight of them and you use them in your kitchen, they don't care. If you printed out 8,000 of them and tried to sell them, then 
Autodesk is going to come after you and want you to pay for the fusion. So I just I just want to point out that that's how up with the times I am. You know, it's been these services have been around 15 years, and I'm I'm just now hearing about them. You know, it's either that or it's just I have a lot of friends that have lathes and bridge ports and all those type of machines that you know I've just been around machining your own parts all my life. You know, I came from a place that we didn't have that facility. We didn't have a machinist on staff. Now I'm at a place that we usually, any day of the week, have three Haas CNC machines, lays, tool mills, bridge ports, every sun and engine tooling. So, yes, you know, when you surround yourself with them, but for that person who needs that one-off part, unless Will's totally revamped his shop in the last year or so, he doesn't have a, a Haas machine in his you know, his repertoire of tools, I know he'd love to have one, but, you know, this would be even something that he could do provided, you know, he couldn't drive down the street to another shop and have it made. But when you're in the industry, you have those ins and outs. When you're not, sometimes this is what you've got to do. Yeah. One of the, one of the problems with that on, on our side is the, the timeline of it. It can take months to get the part developed and, get it in your hands. I've entertained the thought of, you know, doing the internet based, you know, machining companies, but I find it a lot better if I just kind of whip something up, take it to my buddy's shop down the road and knock it out pretty quick. I'm sure one day I'll probably get him so busy where I I may try that just to kind of see what the turnaround time on something like that is. Now, especially that I have a guy working for me that's pretty good on AutoCAD, so um, you know that might make might make it a lot easier to to do that. One thing I want to go back and touch on that you mentioned a little bit, John, was the magazine side of things. I have a lot of friends in the uh, you know in the hot rod industry that have lost jobs uh, because of the internet and killing the magazine industry. You know, a lot of people are not going to keep up with the times and, and get an iPad or, or something to get the digital copy. And, you know, they lose, they lose sales and, and, uh, I, well, I guess they lose sales because people are getting the internet copy. And so that ultimately they're not making as much money. And, you know, a lot of magazines companies have, have went under, I know that uh, 10, which used to be Peterson Publications, I mean, they're down to half the magazines they were 10 years ago. I know of eight or 10 guys just in the last couple of years that, and I'm not talking about guys that just went to the car shows and took pictures. I'm talking guys high, higher up in, in these companies that have lost their jobs because it's I guess it's a lot easier to produce a online copy versus a paper copy. And they just keep, they keep combining magazines just like they done away with custom rotter and put it under street rotter. And they done away with classic truck and put it in with custom classic trucks. The magazines didn't get any bigger. So the content is less and that, you know, that ultimately makes it a lot harder to get one of your cars, one of your builds featured in a magazine. To me, which is still really, really cool, 
to have your car featured in a magazine. You know, to me, there's nothing better than opening up your mailbox and there being a magazine that a car that you built with your own hands is, is featured in that book. So that's, that's one of the negative things about it because you can't, you can't take a, a, an online copy of a magazine or a digital copy of a magazine and hang it on your wall. So you, you, you lose a lot of that. And I don't know, there's just something about flipping through the, uh, a street rider magazine and just filling the pages and that I, I really enjoy. I totally understand, you know, what you're saying. And it, it's kind of, I think some of it is the digital. I, I don't believe. And if you're out there and you produce magazines and write magazines, I don't believe producing a digital copy of a magazine is any less intense than build producing the print copy. It does save, obviously, on posting, postage and printing costs. So the I see, you know, see print shops losing money. Obviously, the post office has their own issues. I've never had a car featured in a magazine. I think I've got a car pictured in the back of a magazine once, you know, in readers' rides or whatever. There, to me especially when I was younger and I wasn't so in the industry, there's nothing cooler than seeing you know, seeing a buddy's car or a friend's car in a magazine. You go buy 10 or 15 issues to hand it out and say, hey, I know this guy. There's that fun level. I still love when I see my stuff in print. I write articles for a couple different newsletters every month. That's still, especially to my grandparents, That that's cool to them. They don't care if I make a website or have a post on a website. They don't care if I have a podcast. But if I can send them a magazine of something that I've written in, that's something that to me makes them feel good. And I get a little bit, you know, I get a lot of rewards. So I, I know exactly what you're saying, Will. And I've seen the destruction of the magazine. One of my car lines of cars is kit cars. And in my life, I've seen kit car magazine go away. I've seen kit car illustrated go away. I've seen that merged into another magazine and that went away. And now there's a new magazine called reincarnation, which is a really nice replica magazine. They're really trying to change the thinking behind kit cars, but they are as much digital as they are print and their print subscription at this point, last I knew, is free. You register and they will mail you the hard copy because they know very few people want the hard copy. They want the digital magazine. Uh, Just subscribe to Make Magazine. And of course, they give you a massive discount if I get it all digital and I don't get it in print. So they want it that way. That's one one area that this whole whole media has changed is digital content of magazines, producing a website where it's a blog or something in all of your articles come out that way. Talking to a magazine writer with, uh, uh, used to be a major car magazine and not so much anymore about doing certain things. And a lot of it is, oh, we got to do it digital. And they really don't care about the in magazine article. They're concerned about Facebook Live and YouTube Live and being able to stream this and get the content out immediately because nobody wants to hear about it two weeks later. They want to hear about it now. So, they can participate with whatever their online comments and such are. Yeah, I, and that's I, I guess we can blame a lot of it on social media because we go to these hot rod shows and we're posting pictures of, you know, just say the Detroit Autorama, okay? You got, you know, the grade eight. Nobody has seen a picture of these cars. They're debuted there. Well, heck, by the end of... Friday afternoon, everybody in the country's seen f- 
400 pictures of the great eight. So why buy a magazine with it on the cover in a, in a 10 page article, you know, or a five page article. Three, three months after the fact, by then it's old news and heck there's another, you know, there's another it car this week. Exactly. SEMA, you know, why, why are we going to go buy a magazine after SEMA? You know, that we've already seen every car that we wanted to see featured there. Um, so yeah, I guess every, ultimately say, that's that's probably what has definitely killed the magazine market is is you know social media. Well, the ma- the magazines have killed it. Um, I'll say podcasting probably hasn't helped it. It's not podcasting isn't really mainstream. Um, YouTube is right there. I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. I went to you know I go to a show. And by the before I get home, there's 15 YouTube videos about something, and now I get to see see it run, I get to hear it, and I can you know I can digest this information while I'm doing something else. You know that's one reason I like audio podcasts better than uh, a video podcast. That's why we do audio is I can listen to this podcast while I'm in the the shop working or or such. But if I'm watching it on YouTube, I can't. But if I want to see something run, and that's why, you know, we have our complimentary Facebook and our Instagram pages, is I'm able to put pictures out right away of the things we talk about and help educate you and make it easier for you as a listener to get this information. And it's touched on everything. We could probably talk five hours about each little, you know, and talk about the nuance of the eBay and the parts buying. We didn't even talk about selling of cars. We're into the magazines and, you know, Hemmings just shut down one of the magazines that I really enjoyed. I mean, first I enjoyed British Car, which was uh, was merged and became part of, I believe, Hemming Sports and Exotic. And Hemming Sports and Exotic now went away and they replaced your subscription with Classic Car. And to be honest, I don't want Classic Car, otherwise I would have, you know, subscribed to it to begin with. And the Hemmings magazine itself, the Gold Book, used to be probably 25% larger. It was all newsprint. And it was all cars for sale. Now, like I said, it's reduced in size 25%. And half of it is a print color magazine with magazine articles. And half the cars are for sale because by the time I put a print ad in Hemmings, I hope to have the car sold in, in this day of eBay. I decide to sell my car. I pop it on eBay. I pop it on Auto Trader. Name your, uh, bring a trailer, barn finds, you, you name your website. I can have it sold. I can have it listed, sold, paid for, gone out of my garage and be driving something new before that Hemmings issue would have ever even hit the newsstand. And I think a lot of us car people, one of the reasons we want to sell our cars, there's another one for sale that day that I want to buy. And I need my 50 grand that day or 20 grand or 2,500 or whatever. I don't have time to wait for the publication that a magazine used to be three months. I think they can turn them in two months now, but it's still print media is suffering because of the Internet. It's creating a whole new industry. And you talked about um, 10 magazines and you know they I believe they the whole corporation was just bought by Discovery Communications. I've got it here in my notes, and you know that included Velocity Television and all of that, all falling under the Discovery umbrella because they're looking to make a lot more of video content, internet content, and again, slide away from that print magazine. It's going to be a challenge for those companies because they, you know, you have a boardroom with older people that don't understand the new stuff, 
and you have the people like I'm gonna say Scotty DTV who they they pop stuff out daily, you know, and it's new, it's fresh, and it's he understands his clientele. He's out there with them, and he doesn't have to report to anybody. And that's part of the I think the good of the internet is it's out there and lively and very in tune with the consumer. Yeah, I think that's key that, you know, you just said it's in tune with the consumer because going back to that talk about Hemmings, um, you know, or any of the magazines that are published with uh, advertisements, you know, classifieds, there are so many websites and and even a lot of the, the major, you know, international or national clubs, most of them have a classifieds webpage and you're getting direct marketing to the direct collectors of that type of car. You know, the HCCA, the Horseless Carriage Club of America, you go on their website, there's a cars for sale section, and you know that if you're looking for a horseless carriage or a classic era, through classic era car, you can go on there and find a whole lot of them for sale, and you don't have to go flipping through Hemmings when it shows up, looking at each make of car from that era and trying to figure out what's for sale. It's right in front of you. You know, the same thing, I'm sure, with, you know, the Mustang clubs that are out there, the Camaro clubs that are out there, all the different clubs that are out there. You go to their website, almost everyone I know of, there's a classifieds or car for sale section. You're targeting your key audience who are the guys that as soon as that car goes up one day, you know, tomorrow morning I list one of my cars by that evening, it's probably going to be sold because I'm key marketing it to the right people. Whereas Hemmings or any of those publications that are in print, you're just broadcasting that out a wide net and hoping someone that's looking sees it. Another example of of that, touching back on print magazines and and YouTube videos, is Scotty was at the Detroit Autorama when we debuted our 65 dart project. Well, I think Friday night, maybe Saturday night, it went up. Well, six months later, it's in Hot Rod Magazine. So everybody had already seen it 10, 15, 20 times and heard, you know, a video of me talking about the car and Scotty walking around it and hearing it run. And even, he even got an interview with the owner, uh, Willie, uh, during that and to me that that's that's a 10 minute video of walking around with the guy that built it talking to the owner hearing it run seeing it move versus just flipping pages and reading and using the old cliche and thinking 24 frames a second for video if he's got 10 minutes of video at 24 pictures per second and a thousand words per picture plus the owner talking you get so much more information in your 10 minutes there than you do 10 minutes of reading that article in hot rod magazine or which you know whichever publication you're at and the the only thing you lose is like you said that ability to hang the magazine on your wall and have it laying out in your waiting room to you know show people which i don't i don't want people to think that i'm complaining about that because I set out three goals when we built the dart and uh, I knew Scotty was going to shoot it. So that wasn't an issue, but it was uh, to make a grade eight for Robert McGaffin to shoot it for hot rod magazine. And uh, so, you know, I'm ecstatic that it made it in, in hot rod magazine. 
but for you know a subscriber why is he going to subscribe to something when it's already out there well have we talked the internet to i guess the death well the the only thing that we hadn't touched on that i kind of wanted to was uh forums we can talk about that later because we'll, we'll get into a whole nother a whole nother version of this um just with the information that's out there on on forums from routine maintenance to your daily driver to building a hot rod so i would say let's go ahead and jump into the forums because the the two-parters don't seem to do too well for us so if we end up with an hour and 30 show all right and let let, let let's see how that rea- how the listeners react to that maybe they just want more of us each week as opposed to little bits of us well i know like on there's a lot of hot rod forums out there that that we we don't participate in as much as we used to, but we still participate in a good bit. And, you know, it, it's it's really geared more towards, I would say, the, the guy at home building a high-end car. Um, but, I mean, we post our build pictures on, on some forums as well. And, you know, it helps with everything. It helps with building a little bit of hype or momentum, so to speak, with your project. Um, that helps you, that helps Hot Rod Magazine see it. Uh, maybe they want to do a photo shoot with you when you debut the car. Um, gain sponsorship. If you're looking for somebody to, to sponsor you a set of wheels or tires or paint. So that, you know, that really helps get your project out there before it's finished. Uh, create a little bit of buzz, so to speak. And, that's just one of the small things that we use forums for. I know that some of the guys that work for me, you know, trying to find something that's wrong with, with their daily driver. It's not running correctly or, you know, the something about changing the blend door motor in your Tahoe or whatever. You can hop on a Tahoe forum, search it, and boom, there it is. Step-by-step pictures, videos of how to just do regular maintenance to your to your daily driver. Ultimately that's, you know, gonna hurt some of the uh quick oil change places or mechanic shops or anything like that. But you know, it sure does help save uh money to the normal consumer that don't mind getting his hands dirty a little bit or enjoys wrenching on his car in his driveway or you know, whatever. I don't think I say I don't think it hurts the quick oil change places or the little service centers because the history of the automobile has always been people wrenching on their vehicles and wanting to and there's legislation about it and there's ways that the government's ensuring that we still can wrench on our vehicles and that demographic keeps getting smaller and smaller and the shops still get more and more business and that's kind of reflected in that you can take your car into some shops and it can take two or three days. I used to drop off one of our cars at the dealership, schedule an oil change. I'd be lucky to get it back in three days because they were so busy. Now, I think if I would have actually driven it in and not scheduled, I would have got it back quicker. But you know, I had the courtesy to make an appointment. I had to wait a little bit longer. But it, it's not uncommon to drop off a car and have to pick it up a week later to have you know service done. Not, not an oil change or tire rotation, but if something's broken on it or... I had an ignition issue with 
one of my other vehicles and I dropped it off and I couldn't get it back for a week. And they basically told me, oh, we couldn't find a problem. It takes a week for them to tell me, and sorry, we couldn't find a problem. So I don't think there's problems with that. The forums are great for, you know, disseminating information, helping self-diagnose the cars. You know, I would say, you know, I've done some part-time work in commercial shop, shops for, you know, just general repair, kind of for fun and to hang out and things like that. But the shop owners hate it when you come in and you say, this is what's wrong with my car. And, or you go to AutoZone and you do the check, you know, get a code and you come back, you fix the code, but you, you know, usually that code's created because something else farther down the line caused that part to break. And it hurts people a little bit with the the forums and the the diagnostics, but it's also, uh, we'll take the Lotus Elise always has air conditioning problems. And I know that, and you get on the forums and you can find out from other owners how they've managed to maybe make their air conditioning work a little bit better or continue with this or with the advent of the direct injection engines a couple of years ago, there was a lot of talk about catch cans and the oil and the way the valves don't get properly cleaned because there's not fuel washing over the valves anymore. It's being directly injected in a cylinder and you get build up on the, the valves. It helps people know how to repair that. I know on the, the mini forums, I see owning a mini. It makes me a little paranoid of owning the mini at certain mileage areas and the service about them and the things that can go wrong. But it's nice to know that community's out there and you can go out and you know 20 other people have had this problem and they can tell you, well, no, you really got to go to the dealer to do that or this is what you have to do here. Uh, back when I had my Porsche, I did a lot of the maintenance myself because... Frankly, I probably couldn't afford a Porsche when I had it, let alone the maintenance. And it helped me have that car for a little bit longer than than I needed to have it because that information's out there. It also helped me buy it. It also made me aware of issues to look for when buying it. It goes back a little bit to where we started. There's good information out and there's bad information out there. And you just have to research or believe the person you're talking to and definitely go with your gut. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that, John. And that was going to be, you know, one of the things I mentioned was, you know, again, it goes back to that when you're on the internet, when you're on these forums, especially, you know, you got to take, I think, everything with a grain of salt if you go with the old, you know, phrasing. But you just got to be wise when you're reading it. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm no stranger to forums. I've been on forums, you know, anything from hot rodding, some, you know, some hot rodding forums that I was involved with when I was, you know, a little younger back in college and, you know, was just into all the different car stuff. But also just like Will said, some of the guys in his shop, you know, you get a problem with your daily vehicle. Any one of the three of us probably could say, well, it, it's acting like this, so it's got to be something with this part of the vehicle. You know, I mean, it just from, from the line of work we're in and the things we do. But when you can go on the forum and, you know, I, I used to own a Dodge Durango. Check engine light comes on. Have an idea what it might be by the way the, the vehicle's acting rather than run in the first thing and, and get the dealership to read a code on it. You know, I, I get to work or get home from work and the dealership's already closed. Well, hop online, hop on, see if there's a Dodge Durango forum and go on there and see if other people are having the same problem. Turns out, yeah, they were. And this is what it was. Called the dealership up, took it in, and they essentially told me the same thing. Yeah, you know, I mean, and and I'm not saying that 
I walked in there and said, hey, this is what's wrong with my truck. But I at least had an idea of what other people's Durangos were doing. You know, recently the forum was also helped me to find a technical service bulletin on my F-150 that I have. Uh, you know, I was having an issue. I thought, wow, this seems really weird that I'm having this issue with this truck. Went on, started doing some research, found through a forum, and it you know, was able to find through that forum that there was a service bulletin out and I was able to kind of figure out what the problem was and what I would need to do. Yeah, like I say, I mean, these forums are positive in so many ways in in helping people, you know, track down information, figure out that other people out there are having the same problem with the same vehicle that you own. And, you know, it is, it's just that matter of really it informs you a little bit, but if you're, you know, maybe not a car guy or a car person, like one of the three of us, like I say, we can kind of judge what's going on, you know, read through it, get some background information, but definitely find a professional that can also back that up, make sure that really is what's going on with the vehicle. Yeah, with, with modern cars nowadays, everything affects everything. Feeling... uh filling something out and thinking you know what it is like we did back in you know 15 20 years ago with just a carbureted car or whatever it it's it's not that way anymore if uh if you don't have a computer to diagnose it or or something else or somebody's had the same exact problem then um it could be a, a hard road to hoe you know so I'm thinking our determination on the forums, especially for diagnostic purposes, good if you vet the information fairly well. Oh, I think so. That's- yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I really do because, you know, like I've said, I've used them a couple of times just to go on and see, yeah, because you just, you don't know. I mean, you, you, you know, I have a problem with my truck and I notice something. Well, rather than just go in blindly to the dealership or, you know, a shop somewhere, hey, plug it in and read, you know, read the code for me and tell me what's wrong, can at least go online and get some of that. Well, this is what's happening with a lot of other F-150s. And it gives me, when they come back to me and say, well, this is what we found, I can go, oh, wow, yeah, that's what's happening with everybody else's. It's common and it probably needs to be fixed. I mean, I think they're useful. I mean, I've been on some forums that I mentioned, you know, some of the hot rod forums that I was on years ago that I saw some really bad information on how to modify a chassis or do something that is a little riskier for the at-home restorer or hot rodder that hasn't had a lot of experience with building cars. So in that type of forum, I think there's a chance for a little more risky information. And Will, maybe you can talk to that because, you know, especially with hot rod industry being your field, you might have seen more of that. Yeah, you know, some of the biggest things is you know, misled information on say LS swap, you know, you can, it's, it's, you know, one of the things that I'm a stickler on is I'm not a big fan of a fuel pump on the fuel rail. You know, I think they all need to be in the tank, uh, like a factory car and, you know, they run cooler, they last longer, better performance, uh, don't heat your fuel up, you know, just a lot of little things like that, that people 
you know, a lot of people on the internet say it's okay or on forums to say it's okay. And it'll work, don't get me wrong. But eventually it's not a matter of if it's going to fail, it's when it's going to fail. So, you know, just a, a few little things like that that are out there that I wouldn't call it bad, but something that I disagree upon. I like doing things once and not doing it again, but... <laughs> um, you know, people have good luck out of, out of doing it that way, but I, I'm just not one of them. And this, that's just one of the things that I'm familiar with. And, you know, your harnesses, you know, modifying a stock harness versus buying a completely made harness. Just, you know, a few little things like that that people swear by that I'm not real keen on. Well, let me touch on one other aspect of internet and how it's affected the car hobby before we run out of here since we've got you a little bit. What is our overall look? Because we're all of the age that we've been in car clubs that they existed and they got together and we had our meets once a month and we'd hang out with each other in person and chat and look at what what street rod was modified this way and what hot rods this way and who bought the you know the latest model T and you go hang out with your low riders and, and such, or you go to your car stereo events. And that's all been replaced by Facebook groups. You know, I'm on Facebook and there's four mini clubs locally and there's three Mopar clubs and and such. And the, these are where the clubs operate, you know. And then I'm in a British car club that doesn't really, it's an older demographic, so nobody wants to be on Facebook. So they still do the meet once a month and that. Do we think that the internet has really taken, I mean, even the need, the need for this personal interaction? I mean, I can go join, say, a Ferrari club and pretend I own a Ferrari and be involved with the club online and not actually have the car. Has the internet internet been detrimental to this camaraderie that the car used to bring to us? You know, think back to the 50s, you go to the soda stands and we still have our cruisings in that, but is it really a younger demographic or is it just a lot of us old geezers that go to the show and our parents that go to these shows and the car club culture is kind of went away? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, you go to, you go to local cruise nights and car shows and no, there's not, there's not a ton of younger people there. Um, but you know, when I was growing up, Going to stuff with my dad, there wasn't a lot of younger people involved either. I think it's, you know, a lot of people develop their their car hobby interest at a at a little older age, maybe than than some of us or than most of us. Just, I mean, that's just a the, thought. The, the income arrives, and those that of us that were. Those of you that were responsible, uh, I wasn't necessarily, like I said, my car habit might be cheaper than if I had a cocaine habit. I'm not sure, though, that you wait until you can afford that third car and maybe go out and do that. And I, I do remember when I, you know, I was a kid and I was playing with car stereos or I was playing with the CRXs or the, the, the mini trucks. It was a lot of kids and, you know, a lot of people my age, 18, 19, 20, and we would hang out and we would get together and do things together and now it seems it's a struggle oh we're going to have a cruise in we're going to have this and you've got to plan it two months out and hopefully everybody will arrive and nobody will commit until two days before and it's really hard and difficult to plan well i don't know i mean it might be bad of me to say or maybe it it i'm not sure what it means but 
I'm just not one anymore, and maybe it's because I'm getting into a different stage in my life, I don't know, but I'm not one for really going to the car cruises or the car shows anymore and, and just parking and sitting. I enjoy getting in my car and driving it and just driving and enjoying the experience of the car, actually using it and being in it. And so that that has kind of steered me away from going to the shows and going to the local, you know, cruise night and and just kind of sitting around chatting with everybody, which don't get me wrong, it, it's fun. You meet people that way. I probably will need to do some of that again here pretty soon because I've moved to a new area and I don't know a lot of people. Fortunately, some people on my street are car people and I've met them. I still see a strong like Will said, I still see a strong showing of some of these cruise nights. And really one of the big ones that's going on is this whole move of, you know, cars and coffee around the nation. You know, I'm seeing those are becoming very popular in in the areas they're being held. I don't really know if the internet has taken away from the cruise ins, the car shows, the cruise nights, things like that, or if maybe some of them are just suffering as seems most people are living more hectic and busy lives nowadays than they were maybe in the 50s, 60s, 70s era, you know, and maybe we just don't have that time sometimes dedicated to going and and hanging out at the local cruise night. Yeah, you know, with uh with cars and coffees like in 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 my situation, heck man, I can I can get up, I can go, I can hang out with my buddies. And I can be back home before my wife gets out of bed, you know. So we still we can still do still do stuff around the house, and it's you know it's not, hey babe, I'm I'm going out for the night, see you later to a cruise night. It's heck, I'm back before she gets out of bed. So you know that's a that's a win win for me. I like sleeping in on Saturdays, so I'll be honest, I haven't been to our cars and coffee in a probably a year, but. I usually make it. I usually make it to a exotic car lunch on Saturday, eleven thirty. I roll in. So, <laughs> oh lord, Saturday's the only day I get to sleep in each week. If if that. So, so. if you want John at an event, uh, make sure it's lunch or dinner. No breakfast. No brunch. Just lunch or dinner. Okay, that's that you, is the key. You better you better supply the lunch too. Well, of course. Yeah, well, no, I, I usually get lucky, and thank you for the uh, members of the club that do listen to me. <laughs> Some, somebody picks up my lunch every now and then. I guess that probably means I should start doing it now that I think about it. They have you a fine cigar after that, too, for you? No, um, I find some of my car friends are cigar people, but not a lot of them, and you really worry about you know walking up to somebody's Ferrari smoking a cigar and the top's off and... You know, you got to be careful with your cigars around cars. You accidentally have a puff of smoke drift by somebody's uh, Nissan and they, they go nuts because, oh, no, now it's going to smell like cigars the rest of its life. <laughs> no, no, they think something's wrong with it. Like, <laughs> my, my car's smoking. I said Nissan's not a, not rotary-powered Mazdas. <laughs> Sorry, Philip. Well, see, that's, that's why you need to smoke smoke cigars at antique car events because it's just, I mean, the smoke would just blend in with all everything else. So, you know. That's right. Hey. 
an ash on a white tire that would never come <laughs> so let's go ahead we're we're on the timer here before editing at 1:30 and i'm sure everybody's driven to work driven home and probably driven back to work by now does anybody have we're going to kind of do maybe do some recommendations each week or something that maybe hit the news that we found interesting that we might want to draw your attention to or, you know, podcasts, whether or not there's something we're using in our shops or things like that. Does anybody have this week to touch on or? Uh, The only thing I want to add is I know I touched on it a little bit at the very beginning was the tri five nationals in Bowling Green, man, you need to put that on your list. I know we we talked about car shows that we really enjoyed uh, a few episodes ago. And if I would have been, to this show before we recorded that episode i would have talked uh, a good bit about that show you don't have to be a tri five guy to attend it to really enjoy it i mean there's just so much going on so much packed into uh, a two-day event it's just uh it's just a really awesome show at a at an awesome place to uh beach bend drag strip has been around for a very long time i think there's only two or three uh covered grandstands drag strips re- le- left in the united states and it's one of them so yeah put put that on your uh definitely uh bucket list or to-do list and uh try to attend it because it's it would be it'd be worth your worth your while to do yeah and i mean while we're on the uh, topic of shows i think i'll just throw out there again i know i've mentioned it in the past but it's only a couple weeks away now by the time this airs and that is if anybody that uh listens you know any of our our listeners and i know some of my friends are are some of our uh good listeners that are out there but uh old car festivals coming up in september second weekend in september so after labor day I believe that's, geez, what, the 9th and 10th this year. Uh, Old Car Festival up at Greenfield Village in uh, Dearborn, Michigan. That's the uh, antique car show that I go to every year. Uh, I actually narrate part of the pass and review experience. So if anybody is up in Michigan listening and in that Detroit-Dearborn area, that's a a phenomenal uh, show to come to if you're an early car guy or girl or anybody, early car kid. Hey, come on out. I really don't, I'm really not going to plug anything other than our social media. And we're going to begin a kind of a social media campaign. We'd love to get some more Instagram followers and some more Facebook friends or likes. Uh, We do a lot of posting, like I said, of the photographs and stuff that come out during the show and the things we talk about. You know, when we did the fantasy episode of how much money do we spend that whole week is filled with photographs of the cars that we talked about because we talked about some obscure things or things that and this is more what we were thinking when we were talking we have a couple humorous things that pop up some of will's projects pop up there little bitty videos and things so what i'm gonna do is one of my hobbies during the week doesn't relate to cars is turning and i've got a one of the companies i use is has created a pen they call their six-speed pen. Now, it's really a five-speed pen with reverse, but if you count reverse as a speed, it's a six-speed. And we'll put a picture of that up. But once we receive 250 total uh, Facebook, Instagram followers, whether it's 125, 125, or whatever, but when we have 100 or 250 follow, or 
friends and followers, we're going to give one of these pens away. I sell them on the street for about 85 bucks. It's kind of a cool little pen. And just a way to encourage you to go ahead and, leave, you know, if you leave us an iTunes review, if you like us on uh, Facebook, follow us on Instagram. Once we hit that 250, put all the names in a hat and we'll draw a name and, you know, somebody will be awarded that pen and a, a sticker for the podcast. And we'll see if you enjoy that. Like I said, it's just a way to help, you know, stay in touch with the show. So if you need to contact us, if you have ideas for shows, if you want us to hear hear us talk, you can reach us through those social media channels. No Driving Gloves on Facebook, No Driving Gloves on Instagram. We do have a Twitter feed, but I'm still not good at Twitter, so we don't do a lot of communication there. But we'll even include that in the count if you uh, follow us on Twitter. Or you can go ahead and send your show topics and suggestions to our email at nodrivinggloves at gmail.com. Check out the web website at nodrivinggloves.com, and we'll talk to you guys in another week.